Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den turned bunker in the northwest of England. I'm completely and utterly surrounded by my stuff. This year I've pledged to play a different post-apocalyptic game every month. So far I've played in the savage worlds of Ken Heights' Day After Ragnarok, a 1940s world of pulp adventure with a twist of Robert E. Howard, set in a Europe divided by the Midgard Serpent, raised from the sea by malicious Nazis, its head blown to bits by Truman's nuclear weapon. I've also run the Morrow Project a couple of times, where the brightest and best emerge from a cryogenic slumber to rebuild humanity with the use of guns, science and more guns. I've even dabbled with the so-called retro-clone whatever that means, Mutant Crawl Classics, a homage to one of the founding games of science fantasy role-playing, Gamma World, the subject of this podcast. Here on my right is my great library of RPGs and my grognard files. Here on my left is the ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor, Caroline Monroe. I'll, uh, I'll just give it a tap. Ah, yes. She's appeared as Abby Church in the 2006 movie The Absence of Light. Ah, the special effects are a throwback to the 90s and the acting is rubbish. A science fiction horror movie about corporate corruption as rivals fight over the meaning of life itself. Its name suggests that it'll be a, a documentary about the power of film narrated by my cousins, a sort of essentialness of art. Instead, it's a load of bobbins. A disaster. Like many of my generation, I was preoccupied by the oncoming nuclear Armageddon. We're going to explore the context a little more in a future grog pod, because Gamma World never really felt like it was responding to that. Gamma World was more about adventuring with guns and having balmy encounters. The first edition was published in 1978 by TSR, who were at the height of their sudden growth. They were extending their product line and Gamma World, created by Jim Ward, was a sequel to Metamorphosis Alpha. It wasn't really supported by the company until several years later, when there was a flurry of modules produced in 1981, which is surprising, given that it was a good seller, outstripping GDW's Traveller at the time. To understand the repertoire of post-apocalyptic games more, I've invited our very own Amiga Man into the room of role-playing rambling. Pookie, the prolific reviewer from the reviews from Relier looks at some of the prominent games set in the dark future. He's got an extensive library amassed over the years thanks to his forensic analysis of RPGs 
that he's captured on his site. There are over a thousand reviews on Reviews from Relier, so he is well placed to help us understand post-apocalyptic RPGs. I've met many people over the past five years of podcasting, but one of the people who's become a real friend has provided this episode's first, last and everything. It's from Neil Benson, also known as the Old Scouse Roleplayer. He talks about the first time he played, the last time he played, and the game that means everything to him. Judge Blythe, our resident rules lawyer, faces the Games Master's screen as we get all nostalgic about Gamma World and talk about some of our favourite features of the game. I'll be back at the end to mutate some new Patreon supporters. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Open box! Welcome to Open Box, the part of the show where we look backwards to look forwards. I'm in the room of role-playing rambling with Pookie, and uh, we're going to look at uh, post-apocalyptic games. But first of all, I need to ask the question I ask everybody to get an understanding of you, Pookie. What was... What was the first game you played and who did you play it with? The very first game I played, it wasn't the first game I would have heard about. The first game I played was Dungeons & Dragons basic set. It would have been the Moldvay version of 1981 with the Arrow Oats cover. And that was with my family and it was a disaster. Right. And mm. why was it a disaster? I did, I did. Because, I did, be, uh, because I didn't know what I was doing. I would I would do it entirely differently these days if I could get my family to play because they didn't like me gaming because it ruined ruined part of my education. Right. Oh, I see. So, so if you it, it, gaming has played a key part of your life from those early early days then. And you've been yeah, a collector since then. I didn't start out as a collector. It was more a case of oh, look, a role playing game. I want to have a look at that and I want to play it. And I, I, there were all these fascinating games out there, and I kept adding to my collection. And then you know it built it and built and built until it's been piles of books, and now it's shelfuls full of books and my partner kind of despairs of me bringing home a new game or a whole new bag full of books to review i, I imagine it's a treasure trove uh, in there and we're going to uh, delve in there a little bit aren't we yeah uh, to look at yeah, some certainly. of these uh, post-apocalyptic games i know that when uh, we come to uh, birmingham for uh, uk games expo you very often act as a chaperone for me and blithe but you didn't always come from birmingham no uh, i'm originally from dorset but i've lived in birmingham for just over 20 years so when you when your family weren't happy playing with you who were you playing with who was uh, who was your gaming group back in the day uh, when I started, I, I basically I was the one who introduced role playing to my grammar school. Then, when I was going to my grammar school, I was at the same time I was travelling out to uh, a local group, which is called Have Dice Will Travel, which is quite well known in the area. Playing things like Against the Giants, the Drow, oh, and yeah. yeah, 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 basically that kind of thing, and sort of like exploring other games as well. And then I had another a local gaming group as well I could cycle to. So yeah, and then I moved on to another town and a group of friends, and. I I sort of moved on and apart from a break at university i was gaming in london for a few years and then up here in birmingham and what, what was the repertoire of games that you were playing back then really didn't actually do uh, i mean uh, for apart from one group we didn't do a lot of dnd we did a lot of other things so uh, i can remember gate gate games of uh, call of cthulhu the james bond 007 role-playing game which is an absolute delight um it's ah. probably one of the best licensed role-playing games ever um you know um 
I'm actually having the pleasure of, of gaming with the designer at the moment uh, in a Ringquest campaign. Chris Kluge, isn't it? Yeah, and, and a Pendragon, and anything that came out and that was new and, and, and sort of like, you know, it was interesting. During the 90s, I was playing a lot of GURPS and Cyberpunk and Warhammer as well. I've called you in, I've brought you into my bunker, socially isolated, to talk about post-apocalyptic games. Because at the start of the year, I gave a commitment to play a different post-apocalyptic game every month, research it and look into it. What would you say was the first uh, post-apocalyptic role-playing game? Well, there are three candidates for that. Very first, but most people will say uh, Metamorphosis Alpha came out in 1978. And that's a post-apocalyptic game aboard a captive universe. Um, aboard a great starship that you're exploring as Stone Age ex-crewmen or, or descendants of crewmen. And it's got that thing of the sort of the gamma world set up of, you know, pure strain humans, uh, mutated animals and so on. But really, um, if, you look at the, if you look at the broad history of role-playing games, you go back to Tecumel, Empire of the Petal Throne, because that does take place after an apocalypse, but sort of like tens of, th- tens of thousands of years after one, um, and on a planetary scale uh, versus, um, you know, the limited but still huge uh, space of start the, the warden in Metamorphosis Alpha. The other candidate, of course, is Gamma World, which came next after Metamorphosis Alpha. And that really transferred the concept to the, Earth, to, 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 um, the planet Earth. Because it, it, it's true to say that it's not really a genre is it? It's more of a, an aesthetic, isn't it? It's, it's, it's tropes that are taken apart in a number of science fiction games. And so. Yeah, it's a variant of science fiction. Um, but yes, there's a lot of different, very common elements to, uh, to the genre. So, you know, bu- um, underground bunkers full of um, artifacts of the ancients. Um, once you have Mad Max, you have some elements of sort of like vehicles and vehicle combat. Gamma World gave us you the idea of all the mutant creatures and... Um, uh, basic mutant, mutants, uh, mutant animals, mutant plants, and so on. And then, yeah, it's, it's essentially you've got that, and then you've got the, uh, the sort of like the technically military um, uh, um, style games, like Morrow Project and Twilight Two Thousand. Well, maybe we will talk about those uh, uh, sure. in a bit. Let's just focus on um, Gamma World because we played Gamma World quite a bit, and this the subject of uh, the podcast is about uh, Gamma World because I had a very distinctive way of uh, creating characters. Probably the first to use random tables. Well, certainly one of the first, because essentially what you're rolling for in there, once you've rolled up your stats, um, it's rolling up for your. Uh, your mutations, um, physical and, and mental, and also, also your defects as well. Um, and that sort of like begins to do, introduce the kind of weird and wacky elements of, of, the, um, of the setting, um, even before you start exploring. So you might be wandering around, um, you know, a post-apocalyptic landscape, you know, uh, with two heads, um, wilderness, purple and green stripes or spines, and uh, or you might be I don't know um, you know some a bear like creature but you've got wings and um, horns and so on. I hadn't uh, remembered that. It's actually the games master who's supposed to choose those defects as a sort of balancing uh, mm. to some of your uh, beneficial mutations that you get. Yeah, I mean these days generally it's it's, it's you know it that's not seen as, okay that's a that that is old school because the because the players will look upon that as going oh you're going to punish me with this thank you very much um, rather than rolling the dice you know and seeing what comes up and going it's not me it's not the GM that's pun- uh, 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 punishing me it's the game. 
And uh, the other thing I've discovered uh, playing it is that really it's not suited for one shot. This is designed for campaign play because, as you say, you're exploring. And in the first one, you just get a blank canvas of uh, America uh, for you to explore. And uh, a lot of the book is made up of the games master populating the hexes. Yes. I mean, it's probably one of the earliest sort of like um, hex crawl kind of games. Um, The idea essentially that the game master sits down and creates a landscape for his players to explore, as you say. And in many of these, these games, there's sort of of like an implicit implicit suggestion that you you create your, uh, you know, the, the, the landscape outside your house. Yes, you know, yeah. you know your local area. Uh, I mean, so Morrow Project does this with um, it gives you okay. Here's a, here's America. Here's where all the nuclear weapons have hit. Here's 150 missiles that which you can have fun playing with and targeting specific areas. Yeah, it does. It, it, that's right. The the, the first uh, section of the book is taken up by uh, the missile uh, effects, various uh, locations in America, and mm. uh, where the uh, targets are located and the probable. Um, nature of the uh, missiles that are likely to hit that area. So in Maryland, uh, it looks like it's going to get hit by an SS-17. I don't know. That's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, <laughs> I do think. I think with the Morrow Project, though, it is a, an intriguing premise, isn't it? That Morrow has uh, predicted a nuclear attack, and he's setting up this program with the uh, industrialists in America to cryonically uh, retain some people the brightest and the best in these bunkers to emerge after the uh, after the disaster um, yeah yeah absolutely it's a, it's, a, it's a fantastic premise but uh, you know unfortunately um it's not something it quite really delivers effectively on in the core book you know um certainly doesn't there's it's something that it develops in later uh, scenarios and supplements have you have you played have you ever played the moral project I haven't. To be fair, last weekend was my first exposure to it. I've had a copy sat on the shelf for a while because I wanted to talk about it. And um, it's 40 years old. Obviously, the thing I do is I write reviews. And I went, okay, I do reviews that sort of like key into what's, what came out 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and so on, which, gives, which means I can organize what I, what I review and, and when. My project is 40 years old. Um, so yes, I hurriedly dug it out and read it and went, oh, a lot of people said, yeah, this is quite fascinating. It's sort of like a potential setting, but the execution is not as good as you would want it. What, what I found, because obviously like, contrasting that with Gamma World, people take it very seriously. Um, yeah. I played this the other night. I thought they were never going to leave the bunker. Uh, they mm. were that cautious. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, what, the, 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 good, there's good reason for that because essentially... Um, People are sort of the, the, the characters are designed as sort of like generally real people. Um, they're armed with real weapons. Um, they, they, there's no that it's no weirdness or wackiness until I get outside. There's no that you know. And um, the other intent of that course comes from um, really who designed it, um, mm. because like uh, Twilight Two Thousand, it's really designed by. Um, of course, it's an American game, but basically, um, basic ex ex service. Uh, men, you know, mm-hmm. they served in the in the American Armed Forces, or they served in the National Guard. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we like the, the writer of the Armory is also the author of, of Moral Project, so, and and that came through also again in Twilight Two Thousand, uh, and a lot of people obviously at um, 
uh, game designers workshop. So you have sort of like a, 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 a sort of like people with a mil- with military experience writing sort of like those two role playing games in particular. There is a lot of uh, concentration on the efficiency of weapons and the amount of damage uh, that weapons uh, do because um, people can get eviscerated very easily uh, by a, a submachine gun uh, in the Morrow Project. So, some entertaining, but um, you know, yes. it, it's, it, it's not the fun I'd like to have. I like to have mutants. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's, yeah, I mean, um, the mutants is basically, as I say, it's weird, it's wacky, and it's fun. You know, it's, it's not real in the sense of it's not an attempt on at a simulation like um, Morrow Project or, or Twilight 2000. But I mean, the thing is that the, essentially uh, Morrow Project is one of those role-playing games, uh, post-apocalyptic role-playing games, where it is, which is about leaving the bunker to go and explore. Most of them are about being out in the world and then finding these bunkers, which are your your essentially your equivalent to dungeons. Yes, yeah. Um, you know, um, the one exception to that, in essence, is uh, is paranoia, um, mm-hmm. which is a post-apocalyptic setting, but you're all in the bunker and you don't know what it's like outside until very much later on um, in the development of the game line. Go on, I'm going to say that's also weird and wacky in its own way because it's also a satire. It's almost that sense that we had in um, playing the Morrow Project is that people didn't want to leave the security of the bunker because they didn't know what was beyond it. So it's kind of turning that up and dialing it up. Yeah. yeah. Just returning to uh, Gamma World because we um, we spoke in uh, January after we uh, played the game and uh, what we talked about then was about how the different editions dealt with the apocalypse. To talk about that. Yes. Uh, the, the one of the things about um, the post-apocalyptic role-playing game is they, whenever a new one comes out, it kind of models uh, it, or reflects um, contemporary fears about um, uh, you know, the disasters which could befall um, the, uh, the world. So obviously, if you look at Gamma World and, and also Morrow Project, of course, really, and Twilight 2000, it's nuclear war as the, as the key means of destruction. Um, you know, I mean, we're of an age where we, we lived through the, the end of the nuclear age and can remember how fearful it was. You know, uh, you look at things like threats, um, you know, and, and the air raid sirens, you know, they, they would test. But as it moves on and technology changes, then it's beginning to adopt um, a new technology. So by the time you get to uh, the sixth edition, I believe, is with uh, from Source and Sorcery Studio. Uh, that's taking an account of uh, nanite swarms as well. And then you get to the seventh edition and it's sort of like, you know, by then it's bringing in AIs and they cause the war. And that's kind of reflected in sort of like um, one, of, one of the descendants of um, uh, the Gamma World, which is um, uh, Mutant Year Zero, where essentially, you know, great titans, basically the AIs, fought a war. And, uh, you know, people were sort of like, uh, um, uh, you know, caught in the crossfire. In this, uh, in the first edition, and I carry it into the second edition, mm. it's, the cause of the uh, apocalypse is quite prescient, actually, mm. because it uh, predicts a time when there's a signed kind of social utopia and people are self-actualizing and no longer motivated by the things that would normally motivate them. And they become highly factionalized and uh, have identity uh, identity wars and it's the identity wars that actually trigger the apocalypse so yeah who'd have thought it um you know uh, 40 odd years ago that they would uh, see it coming yeah 
And I, I think it's uh, there is an alignment, isn't there, with science fiction of the time? Uh, because you know it, it, it's a bit of a seventies obsession, isn't it? Um, yeah. The apocalypse and 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 disaster, impending disaster. Yeah, I mean, obviously, in the in the earlier seventies, you've got all the disaster movies like Irwin Allen, but essentially, the science fiction um, it does 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 sort of like deal with the po- uh, post apocalyptic. So famously, um, although it dates the novel dates from the sixties, uh, there's Logan's Run, um, yeah. which is that being in a bunker, not being allowed out. And then going out to explore. I mean, not you know, almost like Paranoia used that as a model. I mean, not in tone. Um, and then you're looking at things like the most obvious uh, post-apocalyptic exploration um, of, of on film. Uh, two couple of films I would suggest: um, Damnation Alley. It's a boy and his dog. Yeah, which is stars a young. Um, uh, Don Johnson with his telepathic dog. There's also the, that uh, trilogy of Charlton Heston films in the 70s of uh, Silent Green, Planet of the Apes, and uh, Amiga Man. Uh, Planet of the Apes is, is, is yeah is, is a classic of the genre. Um, uh, Silent Green also sort of like addresses sort of like the, the possibility of a coming apocalypse because of the situation. Yeah, it is surprising that sort of like that that Charlton Heston did sort of like a bunch of science fiction films like that. One uh, game we haven't mentioned, and I've got my calculator ready, is. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it is uh, Aftermath uh, from uh, Fancy Games Unlimited. If you were doing an apocalypse game and you wanted something really detailed, um, and you, and again, it's one of those ones where you could take it and design the apocalypse you wanted with it. You know, yes. it's not on. It, again, it's. Not, I don't. I'm not saying it's not unplayable, but it, it's a game that demands your time. And, that, and that's what struck me about it because I always assumed that it was um, a nuclear post-apocalypse depicted in here. But you're quite right. It allows you to have any kind of disaster. A virus, heaven forbid, or uh, it could be uh, 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 hyperinflation even as uh, that's causing it. I I believe there's an invasion by tripods, I think, or something like that. Yeah. Alien invasion sort of thing. It's notable for the number of floor charts and the fact that it's got the the, uh, stats for a bicycle. I'm going to give it a go. I, I, I well, you know, I, I wish you every success with that. I'll invite you along. You can, as lo- only as long as you're doing all the arithmetic. So, if you wanted to uh, recapture that old old school experience of uh, post-apocalyptic fun, where would you start? Um, two choices. The most obvious one is um, well, actually, three choices because the Metamorphosis Alpha Collector's Edition is still available. And what's fantastic about that is you've not just got the original 32 pages of the original game in there, but you've got almost everything else that came out for it um, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, in, um, um, and there's interviews and discussions and more rules and, you know, just extra stuff. In there, and and it's, it's, it's packed with a lot of gaming. Um, but the most obvious one, if you're to Gamma World, it would be Mutant Crawl Classics, which essentially is, I'll describe it, if Gamma World uh, in the Gold Box edition was the 7th edition, that's essentially Gamma World 8th edition. Uh, and that, until Wizards of the Coast comes out with, with their own. But that does everything that you want in a Gamma World game, you know. So you have uh, pure strain humans, mutants, mutated animals, and plantians. And does it using the same mechanics as Dungeon Crawl Classics. Plus it's supported with, you know, there's a whole lot of adventures for it that, that sort of like explore some of the, um, some of the sort of like the, the, the genre callbacks. So uh, there's, a scenario, there's, there's one scenario which is essentially, it's take upon the, the Sean Connery in a nappy film, Zardos. And um, yeah, there's another one which is basically not dissimilar to Accountable for, for Leibovitz. 
uh, which is which is uh, a good um, take upon the genre. What has struck me from playing these games over the last few months is essentially it's a device, isn't it? It's a device to take that um, Ken Height adage of start with Earth, wiping the slate clean. Yes. And it just gives you a gameable space um, to do that. And, and, yeah, it, and you can see it repeated, can't you, in different yeah. games? Yes, I mean that, that, that's the thing. It basically, it's 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 a um, um, uh, it's it's a world anew with callbacks to the past. Um, you know, the, the GM can put in there, and there will be things that are out there that are familiar. But you're really just uh, going out and just finding out what's out there, um, what's new, and basically, if you're playing Gamma World, just just having you know having fun more than anything. Basically, getting yourself killed, um, handling handling some some new new artifact that's just electrocuted you. The other thing I would suggest people look at is a Swedish game called Mutant Year Zero, which really is the core book. There's four books. Um, Each one does deals with mutants, then uh, mutated animals, then robots, then pure strain humans, and presents a a campaign for each book. And then at the end of it, it brings all of them together in a new world together. So so it's sort of like a prequel to sort of like the the setup in in Gamma. World, but it's a, it's a, got its own sort of like a European character. The obvious thing is obviously that if you you've got Mutant Core Classics, you've got everything you need to play. With Mutant Year Zero, you're buying one book at a time to get one element, one character character type um, to play. It's a, a gorgeous book. Yeah, uh, the, the Mutant Year Zero book, and I think what I, I've not played it yet, mm. uh, but I'm going to give it a go uh, in the next uh, couple of months. It seems to strike a balance between the um, Gonzo Madcap uh, yes. Gamma World uh, and uh, the kind of dour uh, Twilight 2000 uh, moral project. It seems to walk uh, the line between those. Yeah, uh, they, they, it's, 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 it's a much slightly drier tone, but it specifically sets it up so that you are uh, exploring um, an area that you that the GM can populate and uh, it's also the other thing, it's got one thing that a lot of, in cases many um, post-apocalyptic role-playing games don't necessarily have, in certainly in the core book, is um, rules for uh, uh, developing your society. Yes. You know, uh, basically reconstructing the, 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 you know, what you've got to hand and making your world better. And it would be remiss and we would get... Uh... Uh, brownie points, not toughers from uh, our friends at the Smart Party. If we didn't mention Earth Dawn, no, point. exactly. Um, there's a, uh, it's, there's, uh, that's not the only one in in its genre. But essentially, um, I have read uh, Ken Height has said Earth Dawn is the Morrow Project done right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Essentially, because essentially you are, it's um, you, you basically the horrors descend upon the world. Everyone goes into Kerns and hides for sort of centuries and then comes out when it's safe. And it's a fantasy setting rather than, um, you know, a science fiction setting. Um, the other one that's similar is a, there's a role-playing game from Grimalkin Games called, uh, called um, Desolation, um, where magic goes crazy. Um, and again, with that, uh, you have... Um, a similar thing, a fear of technology, but the technology is magic. That, that's a, a great uh, trot through uh, how RPGs have uh, taught us everything we know about the apocalypse. Hello, this is Neil Banson, aka Old Scouser Role Playing on Twitter. 
and on my blog, oldscouseofroleplaying.com. I've been invited by Dirk the Dice to talk about my first, last and everything role-playing games. Before I start, I'd like to thank Dirk for the invitation. My first game is Tunnels and Trolls. It would have been 1983, the occasion of my 17th birthday, the trick of my interest in all things fantasy. Earlier in the day, myself and my mate Kev had been into town to watch the return of the Jedi, and the day promised to be even more exciting as I was staying at his, as his parents were away. We had two videos to watch. His dad worked at Ford's and knew a guy who could get videos. The first was The Warriors, which was Ace, and Bakshi is the Lord of the Rings. As much as I enjoyed The Warriors, I was entranced by The Lord of the Rings, revealing a world of magic, strange races, and heroic tales. Never before had I encountered such a thing. The next day, I mentioned it to my brother, who was really into military modelling, and he told me he'd read about a game called Dungeons and Dragons in one of his magazines. This game is supposed to be like the Lord of the Rings, he said, and pointed me to a Games of Liverpool advertisement in one of his magazines. With no idea what a game supposing to be like the Lord of the Rings could be, I ventured into the basement of Games of Liverpool for the first time. I told the chap behind the counter why I was there. He asked me if I had a group to play with. I didn't really understand what he meant, so I said no. Rather than D&D, he suggested I grab Tunnels and Trolls, as it supported solo play. Again, I didn't really know what he meant, but trusting to his expertise, I purchased the game, anxiously waiting to get home to see what I had bought. I don't really recall the details, but imagine I was somewhat bemused, a game with just a few books in the box. Still, I persisted, sensing that there was something to this role-playing thing and drawn in by Liz Danforth's amazing art. If I'm honest, I really struggle with the game. Some of the ideas sounded really cool, but I couldn't see how the game worked. My first and only attempt was Buffalo Castle, and myself as GM and Kev being a good friend and patiently putting up with this nonsense, playing six characters I prepared for him, handwritten onto index cards as suggested. We really tried to enjoy the game, but it just wasn't working. I reread it, but Kev had had enough. Then my mind turned back to my brother's original information, and I returned to Games of Liverpool with that lovely little orangey-yellow box in hand, and traded it in for the basic Dungeons and Dragons rulebook. That made much more sense to me, but that was possibly because I'd read a little more about RPGs, having bought the iconic book what is Dungeons and Dragons, and perhaps a magazine or two. I've not played Tunnels and Trolls in the 35 plus years since, despite having the deluxe edition on my shelves. Fingers crossed, sometime soon, I'll get a game. The last game I played is Barbarians of Lemuria. I returned to the hobby about four years ago and didn't really know where to begin but I could see that the hobby had changed in the 20 years since I'd last played. I went through a load of different games, each seeming more exciting than the last. One game that really caught my eye was Simon Washburn's Barbarians of Lemuria. It harkened back to the swords and sorcery tales I had always enjoyed, came with its own setting and had a light set of rules. When the game arrived, 
I flicked through it and put it on my shelves where it would hibernate for a couple of years as at that time I was being drawn into OSR gaming. Sometime in 2018 I picked the game up again and started reading it. Immediately my imagination was caught by the weird fantasy setting and I could see how the rules would give fast, exciting, heroic play, quite a contrast to the brutal OSR games I'd become used to running. I started working on a game to run at cons, and also, in early 2019, started a fortnightly mini-campaign. In fact, my original intention had been to run the small adventures in the back of the book as unconnected tales. But when the players came up with interesting background details for their characters, boons and flaws, I started to see how I could put something bigger together, bringing in elements the players gave me, and some of the adventure seeds from the book. Inspired by how Orlanth Rex ran his RuneQuest campaign, which I've been lucky enough to play in, I tried to apply the same approach to Barbarians of Lemuria, and it's worth a treat. We finished the first season and have recently restarted, with me keeping just one step ahead of the players in knowing what comes next. This is a game I can't recommend highly enough, especially now it has more support, with the Lemurian Legends adventure book and the Lemurian Chronicles source book, which adds new setting information, fantastic adventures, and has the best cover of all the books in my collection. For my everything game, well, like some previous contributors, I've bent the rules slightly. I really can't tie this down to one system, so I'm going to say D&D Retro Clones. Back in 2016, when I was exploring the new RPG landscape, I looked at modern rules, narrative games, 2nd, 3rd, 4th and 5th editions of D&D, as well as everything in between. But I found myself drawn to the old D&D games that I'd enjoyed so much back in the day. The thing is that while I love these old systems, I'm really happy with them. There's always something that niggles, so I'm always exploring, always looking for that perfect retro clone. I started with Basic Fantasy, which is a great mashup of 3.5 and Basic Expert D&D, and is completely free and very cheap in print, and then moved on to the clever but flawed The Hero's Journey. My next stop was Lamentations of the Flame Princess, which is a fantastic system, but has some controversial content. I have to say, I've had nothing but amazing games with it. I've also dabbled with Dungeon Crawl Classics, although some would claim that it's barely a retro clone. And the Black Hack, which is definitely not a retro clone, but is old school D&D with modern rules. That has led me by a circuitous route to the one game that nails it for me, and which I'm currently running, Old School Essentials. A reworking of Mulvey Basic Expert D&D, it has its flaws, but its brilliant organisation just works at the table and allows you to tap into all those old TSR modules, as well as a whole raft of brilliant OSR content. However, my journey of discovery continues. So there we are, my first, last and everything role-playing games. Thanks for listening. I look forward to hearing your first, last and everythings when it's your turn, if you've not already done so, and hope to catch up with you all at some point, even virtually, while all this coronavirus stuff is going on. Bye for now. Hi, I'm DM Mike. And I'm DM Liz. We're from the Save for Half podcast. And you're listening to The Grognard Files. Where Judge Blyby is wrong.
No, he's not. Hmm. Games Master Screen! Welcome to the room of role-playing rambling in our self-isolating bunkers. I've got Blythey with me. Hello, Blythey. Hello, hello, Dirk. How's uh, life in your isolated bunker? Um, well, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> isolating. <laughs> well, I've, I've tried to make the best of it. I've got myself some Elvis juice. I've got some unspecified savoury snack. Are you product placement? What's going on here? You're not specifying the snack, but you will specify the beer. Some it, kind of deal going on here. That we it's don't know, um, it, it's one of those from Aldi where it cardboard Pro- squares. Uh, with yeah, salt, cheap, with the cheaper on. end of the crisp market. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had some like that the other day. They, were, they weren't they weren't Pringles. They were like a, an imitation Pringle. They did taste like cheese and onion cardboard. I'm going to treat myself as well because I'm in isolation. I'm going to mm. spark up my goop candle. What are you talking about? What's <laughs> a goop candle? My Gwyneth Paltrow candle. I've been saving it for a special occasion. Now's oh, the that, moment. Does it have a particular fragrance? <laughs> yeah, I got it from the market. I don't think it's the real <laughs> thing. But anyway, I don't know about you, uh, Blythe, but when it came to Gamma World... Mm. I did have that pang of nostalgia, you know, that seductive yes. feeling of uh, nostalgia in a way that we haven't done for a while. Yes. Yeah. Well, it was, it was one of the, the first, one of the early games, wasn't it? I think it was probably about the what fourth, fourth, fifth game we bought yeah. between us. Well, I think yeah. uh, it, it will remind people of the prime directive. So um, yes, we, weren't allowed to, yeah. we, we weren't allowed to buy games that each other had so yeah if you, uh, if you bought the game you ran the game but that meant that other people couldn't buy it because the games master owned it yeah and so in your repertoire at this time when we started <laughs> with gamma world you had yeah. stormbringer traveler and yes. dragon quest correct and you got gamma world i did yeah and what yeah. drew you towards that I, it's hard to say isn't it really um I think part of it was the hankering to play a variant of D&D because Simon had D&D, didn't he? He had advanced D&D, advanced D&D. Gamma World seemed like a form of D&D, but a science fiction, science fantasy form of D&D. At least on the face of it, that's what it... I think we may, we may see that it's not like that at all, but uh, that's, what it, that's what it felt like. So it seemed... I think I spent a lot of time as a budding lawyer trying to find a legal loophole to get my hands on D&D without breaking the, the loophole. And there was basic D&D, which I did get later. And as I think we've said, actually basic, the expert D&D is a very good little game, actually. Um, but at the time, that felt like, oh, it's no good because you want advanced D&D, don't you? You want basic, you want advanced. So Gamma World felt like a way around that, I think. That was part of the attraction, trying to get round the Prime Directive. Because it didn't really have any prominence. I remember some of the adverts that were in White Dwarf, but Mm. it never featured in White Dwarf, did it, for example? And I'm not sure that uh, Games Workshop stocked it. So I think... Yeah, I think we mentioned before we used to get our games. Uh, You got got Stormbringer from uh, Forbidden Planet in London. Yeah. 
Uh, you got uh, Traveller from Games Workshop, and you got Dragon Quest from Northern Games Day. Yeah, that's right. But Gamma World was a bit more unusual, wasn't it? Because he got that from Beatties. He got that from Beatties, which was a model tie and model shop in Manchester, wasn't it? That had a little bit of uh, an RPG section, which it did sell a lot of odd stuff, didn't it? Yes. I'd love to know now who was behind stocking that stuff in the shop because there was there was some odd stuff in there, wasn't there? You know, it bits and pieces that were you couldn't get anywhere else or you'd never seen anywhere else in some cases. Yeah, they used to have miniatures that you never saw anywhere. They, like they used mm. to bring over the Royal Path ones, didn't they? That you didn't really That's see. Right. Yeah. yeah, you didn't see them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I did, I did get it from there. And it was, I think on the face of it, when I bought it, it didn't, we didn't know much about it. And it was a bit of an oddity because I think I had the second edition, the second edition, which was the kind of golden box. And the front cover of it was um, very kind of flamboyant. Um, and although this was the 80s, very flamboyant, 70s style illustration, I think, of people with ray guns and stuff, which looked a very kind of comic book science fantasy. But the original, the, the first edition that we'd seen advertised in uh, White Dwarf, had uh, it has the, the guys looking at the ruined building, doesn't it? The ruined tower block. Yeah. And that looks very, very post-apocalyptic it doesn't look like science fantasy at all does it very different yeah. covers very different yeah. covers on the yeah, so it's hard to know what to make of it what what was it was it some kind of slightly hard-edged science fiction game or was it something with talking rabbits <laughs> you see and it's true to say isn't it that in our group but well, when I say group, that was me, you, and Simon, wasn't it? Playing at that stage, yeah. Eddie, Eddie hadn't appeared on the scene then, so group, as in three of us, yeah. Um, enthusiasm was mixed, wasn't it? Because I was really keen to play it because, uh, because of Starburst, mm. I was really into Mad Max. I don't think I'd seen it at the time, yeah. but I had the um, cut out of um, Starburst, Mad Max on my wall, and I was into car wars although i could never get it to work properly and i was i had a sense of that post-apocalyptic thing and i was desperate to play this but that enthusiasm wasn't shared by simon and to some extent even though you were running it i don't think you were wholly convinced by it were you no i i don't think i was i i mean it is at one level it is a silly game it is silly because it it's a kind of post-apocalyptic future which is, I think it's fairly strongly implied in the rules that it's a nuclear war. And well, it, is it, post- it, is, it, is, it is a nuclear war. It, nuclear it says, war, yeah. yeah but it, it, it's um, much later than the 20th century where it yeah. kind of uh, happens. But, but, yeah. but it, it, it's a post-nuclear war world. It does have talking rabbits and talking badgers and stuff that seems a bit daft. I think... And it, it, I remember feeling slightly disappointed at the time and wanting to make it work, but I, I, I was never completely convinced. You know, it's like Watership Down with ray guns. Like, what's this? You know, it just doesn't... At the time, and I, I think we're probably guilty, we've discussed it before, probably guilty of all being a bit, bit poor-faced about our role-playing as well. So, you know, we had Room Quest, which is a kind of world in itself with all kinds of cults and structures and societies and a history and stuff but it but it has a kind of credibility to it i think in the same way that traveler universe has a credibility to it as well but then gamma world 
you just there is you just like think oh god you know but isn't it's, it it's a, bit, it's a bit silly is it isn't it odd because i know that uh leading up to this podcast we were kind of exchanging views on it and I could remember quite a lot about the cleansing war of Garrick Blackhand, yes, which yeah. you ran as a Ooh. as a campaign. We had it, we played it for a while, didn't we? And yeah, I, yeah. I remembered quite a bit of it because in my imagination, I loved it, even though hmm. nobody else did <laughs> around the table. I think the opinion of it's changed now. I don't I don't mind it now, but I, I think part of it was. There's that problem, isn't there, as well, when, all right, I had mixed, view, I had mixed feelings on it, but Simon just didn't really like it. And it's difficult mm. to run a game and enjoy a game when one of your players, or several of your players, don't don't like it, aren't enthusiastic about it. It's very difficult then, isn't it? And in those days, of course, we couldn't find other players. So you're stuck. You were stuck to appeasing. You were stuck to trying to find something that would appeal to the two people who I had as players in the same way that you were. You know, you had to appeal to both players because if you didn't, literally fifty percent of your players weren't really engaging with it. And I think that was part of the problem. He yeah. he thought it was a bit daft, a bit silly, a bit maybe a bit beneath him. I don't know. You know, why am I playing a game with? Talking rabbits when I can play RuneQuest and be a on a land rune lord and you know. speak to a talking duck. Well, yeah, that but that's an interesting. That's a good a good example, isn't it? Of in in the world of Galantha, you've got talking ducks, but it's explained in a kind of credible way that they're cursed by the gods. These cursed men or cursed ducks somehow works. Whereas if you say, well, there's been a nuclear war. And you know what the, the literally the fallout of that nuclear war is? Talking rabbits. Oh, yeah. is it? All right. I'm not really buying that. You see, with Grolantha, you, you buy it because it's a fantasy world, isn't it? It's the gods and magic. But what Gamma World's doing is it's saying there's been a nuclear war. And at the time, you, and even now, you're thinking, I don't think a nuclear... Let's hope we never find out. But I don't think a nuclear war would result in talking rabbits and talking badgers. I don't think it would. I'm not a scientist. I'm not an expert on these matters, but I think I think it'd be a lot bleaker than that. <laughs> it's interesting you say that about uh, Simon as well, because I, it, you're right. Uh, at that time, obviously, I was hooked and I would have played any, anything. And it, it's strange, isn't it? Uh, now at our age, you know, early fifties, thinking back, why we tolerated such bad behaviour. Yes, uh, at yeah. the age of thirteen, but we we really needed to keep the ball in the air, didn't we? Really needed yes. to yeah. him to play because yeah. otherwise yeah. it could have jeopardised everything. So well, we it, put... it, otherwise it was just me and you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So which which we did on occasion, a lot of the time it was just me. Yeah. But yeah, having that extra player, he just kind of had a hold over us. So a, a game that it wasn't possible to say, okay, Dirk likes Gamma World, and I. I have mixed feelings, but I'm, I'm okay with it. I'll play it. Maybe we'll find some other players to play it. But you couldn't do that. No. You know, you couldn't do it, you know. But I, I, I remember that tone, because I, as I say, I was into it, and I remember that tone of uh, mocking, yeah. and kind of cruel mocking as well, as it was directed at you, not at the game, mm. uh, right from the very beginning. So it, it's set in uh, Gelstone Park, isn't it? That's uh, right, yeah, yeah. 
There's so, a cat called Typhu Baru. There's a talking cat, Typhu Baru, named, named after tea bags. It's had insults or injury, named after a tea bag. Yeah. And every time, every time that was mentioned, that was uh, ridiculed. Every yeah. time Gelston Park was, to, it was like smarter than the average bear. Hey, boo -boo. Yeah. Wasn't it all yeah. that stuff? Yeah, it uh, was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. Uh, it yeah. never really got going, did it? But I really wanted no. it to work. No, and I think I would have let it work, but it, but like I say, you're just thinking, oh well, half your audience here isn't really buying it, so it's, it's no. doomed in a way. You know, but it's it's odd because we've played it again and really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't think we're as it's not as poor face now, are we? It, it's you know, it's it's fun. It's uh, yeah, it is silly in a sense, but I think you know, it's it's recognizing that um, there's intrinsically lots of fun things built in there, and mm. it's more innovative than you anticipate mm. isn't it you know you really yeah you take some of the things that you take for granted you know re really good ideas and we'll perhaps explore that when we uh, look at the tables but you know I, I really had fun playing it and uh i do feel a sense that i could run a campaign of it you know i would enjoy it <laughs> there you go the goal has been thrown down i, I would enjoy world. it i would enjoy it I would. yeah yeah i think i would yeah yeah no Okay, so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to erect this um, Games Master screen between us so I can mm -hmm. hide the secrets of my tables, my many tables. Yes. Um, and I think we should leave our 13-year-old selves back in the 80s and try yes. and have a look at these rules anew and yes. uh, trying to assess them um, mm -hmm. with our... You know, our Grognardian eyes. Okay, are you ready? <laughs> yeah, okay. Sorry, this candle's getting at me. So here we go. <laughs> I'm going to faint with the fumes. I think so. <laughs> on, here we go, are you ready? And that is a 38. 38. And that, and that is compatibility. It's mentioned in the AD&D mm. Dungeon it Master's is, Guide. Yeah. Yeah, Magic and Mutants or something like that. I think it says something, something like that. Um, it, it is, I mean, it's a very similar system. So it uses, it uses descending descending armor class. Yeah. yeah. So as your, class, as your armor class gets better, yeah. the number gets lower, which is... So that's so the armor, the armor class, it gives a table, uh, a very, very useful table that says things like, if your armor class is five in D&D, &D, it's five in Gamma World. And if it's three in D&D, &D. it's three in Gamma World. That's a very useful table, that. Um, spelt out, you know, <laughs> line by line. <laughs> so they're essentially the same. I think the, the difference, the, the, the big difference is there aren't really character classes and levels in Gamma World, are there? No. At least, at least not in the early versions. I, I, I think I might, I might be right in saying, I think later ones started to develop but certainly the one we played didn't have things like that. So there's humans, there's mutants, and there's kind of animal hybrid types, and there are three races you can pick, yeah, so which the, sort of serve as classes, but they're not classes and they don't have levels and that kind of thing going on. You so pretty you're, much generate your character as, as generated and play them rather than go up the levels or anything like that. 
Yeah, so there's the uh, pure humans, yeah. which there doesn't seem to be much benefit to being a pure human other than it gives you certain access into uh, mm. some security levels and yeah. uh, uh, robots treat you differently uh, yeah, because they're right. programmed. Because they, they, it's based on Asimov, isn't it? Uh, they, mm. They're not... The um, robots are not allowed to harm pure That's humans, right. so that gives you some advantages. But the real uh, benefit is to have uh, mutations, which perhaps we'll we'll talk about. Yeah, well, so you do you do look at it and you wonder you you wonder why someone would ever play a human because even with some yeah. of the mutations, you can still look like a human. They're not all physical mutations, and therefore you still get all the benefits of being a human, can't you? Um, but in terms of in terms of crossover with D and D, it's pretty it's a pretty similar game in many respects, isn't it? Yeah, and it's a contemporary of uh, the Dungeon Master's Guide, and yeah. y- I think looking at it, you realise because I think we said in episode six about how uh, crazy the Dungeon Master's Guide was in terms of you know what you're supposed to do with it, where you're supposed to start. There's so much, yeah. such a hodgepodge of ideas and thrown around. Whereas I think this first edition. Gamma World Rules is reasonably well organised for... Yeah, it's quite a tight system of rules. It doesn't waffle on too much, does it? No. Mm. And it gives it gives you all the elements of Dungeon Master's Guide, such as random generation of yeah. um, new environment, um, encounters, devising encounters, all those kind of things that are in Dungeon Master's Guide. It presents them in a more concise... And yes. Yeah. interesting way compelling way of you know mm. you, you can do something with this yeah very similar game i think there's things like weapon classes isn't there so the to hit rear to hit roll is governed as a, uh, rather than in dnd where it's your level because it doesn't have things like levels you, you have weapon classes don't you i wonder if, i mean we never did it but i wonder if people did you know, uh, parachuting mutants from Gamma yeah. World into the... <laughs> Time travel, yeah, something, interdimensional travel, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> having uh, having characters shooting a blue dragon with a ray gun and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I suppose the only thing is not it's not compatible with is hit points is a bit odd because in, in Gamma World you roll a D6 for every point of constitution, don't you? Yes, yeah. Whereas in, in D&D, you think, well, yeah, you, you start with, could start with relatively low hit points. It's a bit odd. So how does it handle that in uh, the conversion? I'm not sure it does. Right. <laughs> I'm not sure it does handle it, to be honest, particularly well. Let's go back to the table. Okay, that is uh, 15. 15. And if I go down the table... That's artifacts, artifacts. Mm. So part of the core activity in Gamma World is exploring the world and mm. recovering stuff, isn't it? Going around trying to find stuff, and yeah. that's how you enhance your character by finding things um, that have a usage for you, and that's how you develop your character by finding more stuff. And that's quite a novel way of dealing with how you find out how that stuff works. So rather than a simple role to say, yes, I know, an evaluate treasure role, for example, yeah. uh, I, I, I know what this is. It has a, a mini game, and mm. depending on the complexity of the artifact, you can... <laughs> 
have a meter, which is a bit like snakes and ladders, which means that you mm. can move around the board and it could blow up in your face and uh, hurt you badly. <laughs> or, you know, it could frustrate you by sending you round and round in a circle till eventually you calculate what it, what it is. And we, and we mm. used this in the game, didn't we, that we ran recently? Yeah. Yeah, it's like a flow chart. If you roll dice, it takes you down a particular avenue. You roll another dice, it'll take you in the right direction or the wrong direction to work out what what the artifact is. It's quite it's sort of interesting, really, because it it touches on a thing that's quite common in more modern role playing games, which is kind of extended tasks, isn't it? So a lot of games have things that are, you know rolling sets of dice to complete a task, to complete a set of things or work something out. And I suppose it's touching on that, isn't it? Like an extended task of rolling dice to work something out rather than one roll to say, yeah, you know what it is, no, you don't. It's sort of that kind of thing, which you see in games like 2D20 Star Trek has an extended task. I think New Savage Worlds has an extended task rules, doesn't it, as well? It's actually quite innovative. Yeah. But it's time, doesn't it? I can't think of any other games that do that. No, no game we encountered did anything like that. It is quite amusing to slap the honeycomb hexes with arrows pointing this way and that and skull and crossroad bones drawn, hand-drawn. They're like kind of weird, weird flow charts. They're like circuit boards, don't they? It's a diagram of a circuit board with lots of different <laughs> shapes and lines going in different directions, yeah. And, and, and people feel... Um, strongly don't they either for or against mini game but you're right it doesn't feel like a mini game it does feel like that extended task doesn't it it feels like that yeah you know oh can we push it even further shall we go a bit a stage further if we go it might blow up in our face if this uh, continues yeah i mean i I suppose on the the downside something like that is you, you do wonder if you've played the game a lot whether you'd suddenly go oh god not this again not this again yes do we have to play states and ladders in the middle of this game? Part of the uh, pleasure as well is discovering things that have been left behind by the ancients, mm-hmm. i.e. people from the 20th and the 21st century, the 22nd century, yep. um, and trying to make them out. And this is done in a more comical way, I think, mm-hmm. than... Perhaps Numenera does the same thing, doesn't it? You know, yeah. that these ancient civilizations are left behind things that seem odd but useful to the thing. Yeah. So I've got I've got a list from the back of uh, Gamble. <laughs> I'll read you some if that's all right. Yeah. Yes, you should. Please do. Okay. A ballpoint pen, good condition. <laughs> Slot machine, excellent condition. Uh, <laughs> A pleasure globe, excellent condition when grasped firmly, gives the holder pleasurable sensations. You like that candle of yours. Attaché case, poor condition, the locks are rusted shut, contains insurance papers. Sounds like eBay, this. Just <laughs> <laughs> eBay you're reading these from, all the gamma world. A microwave oven, fair condition. The generation game, yeah, microwave oven, cuddly tie, a cuddly tie, yeah. <laughs> I, I guess when it, when I looked at these the generation games, what I thought because they are like seventies consumer goods, 
like a donut maker and that, that kind of thing. Well, it's um, yeah, because that that's that's the thing, isn't it? It kind of <laughs> it's the Holocaust, the the atom bombs started dropping not in our era in Gamma Wells, at some point in the future. But that the, all that's left is stuff from our world. Yeah. We have to do oh. the floor chart to work out how the ballpark pen works. <laughs> yeah. That'd be disappointing, wouldn't it? Yeah. Half the, saying... evening, half the <laughs> evening rolling on that thing. Ha ha, it's a ballpoint pen. Mm. It is in good condition. Right, it is in let's good go. condition. Let's go next. <laughs> okay, and um, it is 28, and that's mutations. Oh, right, yes, mutations. You know, you're introducing well, mutations. Uh, well, yeah, well, the, the yeah, I mean... The, I just said earlier, you can be a huge, pure strain human, but I've, I don't know why you would want to be. Where's the fun in that? There's no, there's no fun in it, is there? You just, you just be like a set of statistics with no abilities or anything. Well, you can be a mutant or uh, an animal kind of mutant, can't you? Um, and I think you roll a D four, don't you, to to work out how many physical and mental mutant mutations you've got. And I think what's so interesting as well is they're not all good mutants mutations are they some of them can be negative things as well can't they yeah like poor poor vision or a poor uh poor kind of body structure and that kind of thing well some some of these uh they do vary don't they between like the sublime to the ridiculous don't they yes the some of them are kind of out border on game breaking don't they some of them are essentially magic <laughs> there's one called like there's a telekinetic flight it's just flight, isn't it? I mean, come on. I think I do remember when we played it, though, being very reluctant to um, allow you to be mutants. Yeah, you did. I'm pretty but, sure that I, we played pure strain humans. And I think I think this is why, because when you read them, if you if you if you roll well, you know, if you roll four four mutations and you roll well, you can become quite powerful in in ways that back in the day didn't seem didn't seem like you'd earned it if you know what i mean there was very much a sense in in all games wasn't there of start off relatively low power work your way up and earn power but in this game you could you could roll a character who's very powerful but you could also roll a character who's a bit rubbish yeah and and it, that's how it was there you were stuck that way i quite I like think, that i think i like it i think i like it now now it seems like fun but I think then it didn't feel like fun. It seemed a bit game breaking, and it felt. I think when I was running it, I looked at some of them and thought, "Oh wow, you know, should I let them be mutants? Should we? Should we let them be mutants? You know, <laughs> I don't know. It seems like could could be a bad idea if they got hold of these kind of powers, particularly when one of the players is a little bit doesn't like it and is going to be perhaps disruptive. You know, and he's yeah. got the power of flight and uh, a death know. stare. The death, stare, the death stare, and things like that—the <laughs> last thing you want, isn't it? I do think that the way that it deals with mental mutations and uh, mental attacks is good yeah. in the way that in the way that AD and D wasn't. It does, it does deal with it quite well, but it's but it still has that that thing of. I mean, there's there's one mutation, time field manipulation, where you can send things backwards and forwards in time, and you know to send something back five years in time is a 75% chance of success. And you start looking at that and think that <laughs> that could create all sorts of problems, couldn't it? In some ways, it's a bit like 
create a character and uh, roll randomly on all the spells in the player's handbook. And whatever you get, you get. Whether it's ninth level, first level, fifth level, don't matter. Get four of these, three of these. To be, to be fair to it, though, it does give you the option to choose, doesn't it? It does say um, in the character creation that you do have the option to choose, but then the uh, the DM has the do the hindrances. So there's like a bit of a balancing act between. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that if you if you're choosing stuff, then the uh, games master has the right to say, well, you you've got this negative mutation to offset it. You can handle some of those game breaky things, can't you? So yes. I think in the yeah. game that we ran, one of the characters could teleport um, to fifteen mm. kilometers away, couldn't they? So he, he chose to, uh, <laughs> to teleport himself to the celebratory homecoming back at the base, where uh, while you were finishing <laughs> off the final battle with the yes. uh, the boss yeah. monster. Okay, let's roll again. Okay, I've got thirty four. And that's uh, robots. I want to talk about robots, but I also want to talk about antagonists in uh, Gamma World because, in general, normally when I pick up a new game, as I've said before, I go straight to the bestiary to try and work work out what kind of monsters you're going to deal with, what kind of... Yeah. As a games master, what are you going to have in your, your palette of uh, colours to put towards uh, encounters? And I think um, there are some interesting. We've we've kind of joked about them, haven't we? Like the the hoops, who are the uh, mutant rabbits? <laughs> mutant rabbits and the badgers are they the badgers? The, the badgers. You know, I mean, I have an aversion to giant badgers anyway, but talking giant badgers, it's a step too. That is a step too far. <laughs> and you've got the sleeth, who are like t- uh, lizards, and yeah. arcs, who are um, dog-like human mm. humanoids, and um, so that. The actual depiction of the races, when you when you encounter it again, you realise that actually there's a bit more to them, a bit more interesting. Hoops, for example, I didn't realise at the time, but they have this uh, mutation that allows them to turn metal into rubber. <laughs> Not only are the giant rabbits, they got the ability to turn things into rubber. Of course. It sounds like you've got a problem with this. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. You, you come back to we come back to that thing. I, I don't have a problem now, but I think I did then. Uh, in the, again, in the game that we've recently played, um, a laser gun was turned into rubber and an axe turned into rubber, and you donated them to the local nursery. I think at the That's end, of... <laughs> in the hope they wouldn't turn back into real ones. It's later date. the effect wears off. <laughs> the kids, the kids of the settlement have got an actual laser gun. But I want to talk about robots in particular because I think they handle robots really well. So as we've intimated previously, um, civilization has advanced um, further than we mm. are in the uh, 20th and 21st century. Yeah. So uh, robots are part of everyday life um, before the actual disaster and catastrophe that brings about the nuclear war. So, so there's still these robots hanging around, so warbots, medbots, cargo bots, who are adversaries encounters that you you might do. And I think it deals with them really well in a way that, you know, when you compare it to Traveller that came out at the time, it didn't give you anything about robots, did it? But this No, no, it never it never it didn't mention robots at all in the core rule, which is Weird. 
when you think people have got faster than light ships and yet no one, no one's got a robot at all. It's a bit odd. Yeah. And I think as, as in, in, for Bestry, you know, as soon as you start reading that, even that first edition, it fires up your imagination of thinking of how you could use these robots. And uh, indeed the first one, so GW1, um, Legion of Gold is all about these centurion robots mm. who are uh, uh, hell bent on attacking a settlement uh, known as Horn, and it was developed. Uh, Gary Gygax, one of the developers of it, and you just think this is this is really interesting. You know, who can control these uh, robots? Who can, um, you know, uh, you can get the better of them and um, apply them in interesting ways. So. I do think that the robots, as they're developed in uh, Gamma World, are, are pretty interesting. Yeah, it's, it's just some of the other monsters, isn't it? That are, like you say, talking animals and stuff like that. You didn't get but, past but that, but that. But that said, well, you, you say you need to I get past it, but, you know. I used to have a problem with it because, you know, my mum is uh, trained as a nursery nurse. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it all comes back to your mother, doesn't it? Um, but I... <laughs> she she uh, was taught as a as a nurse nurse that um you should never have anthropomorphic animals she never show animals depicted in clothes and speaking mm. and so i was never i was never read never had read to me uh, beatrix potter no I, I i never read i never read to me but i, I remember reading to me kids it's a terrible thing terrible books terrible when I was thinking of World, it turned Jeremy Fisher and Mrs. Tiggerwinkle with a ray gun. <laughs> oh, I'm loving it. You know, and some of the illustrations in the rule books made them look daft. Yeah. There is a picture of the hoops, I think, isn't there? Um, in there. And they just they do look like daft watership down um rabbits with guns, and you just think, oh, a stupid idea. Yeah. But I think the picture, the picture you used in the um in the game we had online made them look more like uh that weird rabbit from donnie darko with a gun and that was a bit scary and a bit weird like oh wow no no i, I kind of believe in that. and i think I mean, nice you come back to that problem with science fiction don't you in as much as you've always got that problem of describing how things look what does it look like? Is a spaceship? Yeah, well, what does it look like? Is it a white, shiny spaceship? Is it a grey, crummy kind of looking spaceship? You know, there's a world of difference, isn't there, between the Starship Enterprise and the Millennium Falcon. They're both spaceships, but they're very different. So it's how you describe things in science fiction or science fantasy settings. Um, the talking, walking, mutated animals in Gamma World suffer from that problem, that when you see... Uh, the raccoon in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy on the on the big screen. You think, oh yeah, that that's like a yeah, I see. It's like a raccoon that's been experimented on, and it can talk. And I, oh yeah, it's kind of plausible. It looks looks good, you know. Um, but it's all about visualizing it, isn't it, correctly, and, um, and giving the impression to the players of what it's really like. You know, it's not Peter Rabbit with a spear. It's it's this weird mutated rabbit that almost probably doesn't even look like a rabbit that you would recognize there's a, there's a world of difference in that and that is a problem with how you put that into players minds i think yeah you know 
and the risk of the risk of people seeing it as slightly ridiculous versus something more sinister you know but it, yeah. it's a tough it's a tough ask for a games master to do that i think and certainly when i was 13 it was a tough ask to kind of portray things like that yeah okay that's all again mm-hmm. yeah oh it's a straight nine uh, and it's uh hex crawl hex crawls oh, well gamma world is that's that's the very essence of uh, of gamma world isn't it it is a hex crawl game that the idea is you have a map and explore different bits of it don't you um as pookie said in the interview this was taking metamorphosis alpha out of the spaceship and into a mutated world and um it gives you as a games master the ability to populate it again going back to the point we were making about dungeon master's guide i feel that it does it a lot better populating the hexes is a lot more interesting in this than it than the random dungeon for example it feels it feels kind of should be relatively easy to put together a dungeon whereas i suppose with gamma world because it is a bit strange and a bit different as a game certainly back in the day would have been would have felt very different did feel very different having that random generation of things is a little bit more useful, I think, in this game than in Dungeon, in Dungeon Master's Guide. It feels ridiculous because you think, come on, we can all think, surely you can think of a dungeon with some goblins in it and some orcs and a monster here and there. But in Gamma World, it's very different, isn't it? Because you, I suppose, probably not now, but back then you would have thought, well, what do I, what do I populate this world with? What should be there? And the, the random tables help, I think. And I yeah. suppose give you give you a game that you can sort of improvise to some extent, can you? Yes. Yeah. So if people go into a particular direction, you can quite quickly um, build up the world around it, can't you? Yeah. 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 I that, suppose in a way it's kind of early early world building thing, isn't it? Really. What I find because I've um, run it as one shot, it's it's not really suitable as a one shot. I think um, a lot of these uh, post-apocalyptic games, by their very nature, are meant for going out into the world, exploring and rebuilding society. That seems to be the uh, motif, yeah. and that hex crawl element of it is part of it. Isn't it? I think that's why I'm leaning towards thinking, well, I could do this over four or five sessions and make it more interesting than trying yeah. to get a quick uh, resolution in a one shot. And I suppose it would, yeah, you're right. I suppose it would be more interesting because in a, in a post-apocalyptic world, part of the, I was going to say part of the fun, is a post-apocalyptic world fun. <laughs> I suppose it's more fun than the actual apocalypse, but anyway. Um, so we'll soon find out, won't we? We're on our way there, aren't we? We'll find <laughs> out. Yeah, you're right. But um, I suppose the, the fun of a post-apocalyptic game is survival and, as you say, rebuilding things and having settlements and that kind of thing, which does does lend itself more to a campaign rather than a one-shot. You're right. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to uh, roll for the last time. Okay, and that's uh, 49. 49 is about the cryptic alliances. Oh, yeah. I really like, I think, when I've uh, come back to the game 
um, this is the element that really caught my imagination, the idea that there are a group of different factions that I populate uh, Gamma World that have different motivations, uh, different characteristics, and different secret signs that differentiate them from each mm. other. So it provides uh, some of them in the um, book. Uh, for example, the um, the ranks of the fit, who are otherwise known as the Bonapartists, um, because <laughs> they're founded by Emperor Napoleon I, a mutated bear with delusions of time and place. Yeah, one step away from Beatrice part of that. Um, I, I, you need to get away from this. I think this. Oh, you, well, come on. He's probably like about somewhere. There's a, there's probably a manuscript. Beatrice Potter's unfinished book, Bonaparte the Bear. I did, uh, and you'll remember this from the uh, scenario that we played, the Knights of Genetic Purity. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, who were a sort of uh, they're probably Nazis, aren't they? <laughs> Far right Ku Klux Klan types, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> Trying to um, well, they th- that kind of secret society is is essential in any game with mutants, isn't it? That's that's a a classic thing that there's always any any world that involves mutants. There's always purists, isn't there, out there trying to do them down? Uh, the followers of the voice, who are the programmers, and uh, they believe that the world was created by computers. Uh, and they find them in ruined installations and trying to revive them. And uh, what I love about these in the second edition, they're represented by the symbol of a floppy disk, a five-inch floppy disk. <laughs> yes, which might explain the apocalypse. Maybe somebody tried to use one of those. So I, I think there's there's life in this game. I do. I think um, <laughs> convert after all these years, you get you getting a chance to to re- do it, re- 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 resuscitate it, bring it back. Yeah, I think better contact a- Simon. Ask him who wants to play. See if he's changed his <laughs> mind. Yeah, come on, Simon. Come down and play. You have to play. You have to play a, a bear with a Napoleon hat on. There you go, and not be disparaging. Something tells me that I still need to do a bit of work on you. <laughs> Right, no, gonna... you don't. I'm an I'm an addict. I I would I would play anything. That's the problem. <laughs> I would I would deal with the bear with a Napoleon hat. The bear who thinks he's Napoleon. <laughs> right, I'm going to blow this candlelight before I fall over. Yeah, I can see it's having an effect on you. <laughs> don't don't. So in fact, don't use it all at once. Don't use it all in one sitting. <laughs> Save it. Save some of it for you know. You're going to be in isolation for a long time. Save, save Gwyneth's candle. <laughs> Make you, I mean, I mean, you should probably order another one. Can you order another one online? I don't, I don't know. know. How easy to get hold of? I don't know. This knockoff version, quite a few of them. There's a light that never goes out. All right, Blythe. See you later. See ya. Thank you to Pookie for the interview. There's an extended version of it which will be available soon on the Grognard Files YouTube channel. It was streamed live as part of Virtual Grogmeet, a weekend of games that was held in April 2020. It was bigger than ever, 35 games over the weekend, with over 100 people signed up, thanks to everyone who took part in the event. Gamma World 1st Edition 
is readily available for a relatively low price on drive-through RPG. I don't get anything for recommending that route, but if you want to get a general idea of the game, it's a better option than the secondary sales that seem to insist on inflated prices. The early modules are available too, which are intelligently written and give ideas on how to get the best out of the setting. When I've been playing Gamma World, I've pepped up the game by adding elements from The King of Dungeons, Baz Stevens' stripped-down version of the 13th Age. It allows your vintage car to be souped up with new technology. It brings along advantage, disadvantage dice, escalation dice and bonds as a group penny, but more importantly, you can create your cryptic alliance as a guild for group roles and extra shenanigans. Also, the ability to montage journeys is entertaining in Gamma World One-Shot too. You can get King of Dungeons on drive through too. Over on Patreon, I've revived the monthly newsletter of recommendations and news and views from the den down the back of the settee. This month it will contain details of an online monthly one-shot club which will be open for business on the last Sunday of each month. The first one is hosted by Judge Blythe himself. We have a Patreon campaign to support the podcast and to encourage us to keep going. We've had some new and returning supporters in March, so here's a thanks to them. Pulling up a comfy armchair is Kevin Thorpe, William Gosline, Peter Nowakowski, Brian Parker. Adding a fancy poof to the comfy armchair is David Summers, Wayne Peters, Ian Cooper. At the sofa so good level, I like to roll on a table relevant to the game being discussed and give them a virtual gift. This time I'm going to give them a mutation from Gamma World. So first up is Michael Kuhl from the podcast Improvised Radio Theatre with Dice. And he gets... Uh, 45 multiple body parts. I'm sure you can have lots of fun with this one. But it's a family show, and I know that Mike is a keen RuneQuest player, so I'm going to roll uh, the location on D20. Oh, not an extra left leg, but a 20 and an extra head. Andy Hemming, a fellow Botonian who has now defected to Yorkshire, and we played Gamma World together at Virtual Grogmeet. He doesn't need to roll because he's already Alia Acton with uh, photosynthetic skin. A jolly green giant. Ho, ho, ho. Paul Greenosh gets an eight. That's a death field generation. Ouch, that's a permanent social distancing with menace. Okay, next up is Cameron Orwin. And he gets 74. Shorter. Makes him difficult to hit but with a reduced metabolic rate. Speak to me, the referee, to determine the effects. I'm sure we'll come up with something for that. James Summerson. Oh, 75. And we've just had a 74. There's something wrong with this algorithm. It's like roll 20. But that's pyrokinesis. He's a fire starter. A twisted fire starter. And finally, last but not least, it's Bud Wright. Welcome back, Bud. You have 46. 
Illusion Generation, which is a cool mutation in a recent Mutant Crawl Classics game, an image of Godzilla was projected in front of scared tribes people. Great stuff. Thank you to all of the Patreon supporters. We'll be looking at post-apocalyptic games again very soon, but next time we'll be looking at the chronicler of the pre-apocalypse, Jack Vance, whose series of novels from Dying Earth to Leoness have had a lasting influence on fantasy role-playing games. Until then, adios amigos.